Hey, welcome to Let's Talk About at earhopper.com. This week we are talking DIY, do it yourself, with Ash Huang. Ash is a designer, an artist, an author, a dog lover, and uh, definitely one of my favorite humans. Super excited that she agreed to talk to me today. So let's get to it. Hey, and welcome to Let's Talk About podcast. Uh, I am here with the uh, enigmatic Ash Huang, uh, and we're going to talk about DIY. Hello. Hello. Um, we already ate our tacos, which I think is a better way to go than actually chomping on the microphone. Yes, they were delicious. They were good. They were also from Iron Cactus. And today we got the fish tacos. It's the first time I've gotten the fish tacos there. And it's, I don't think you could eat those like regular tacos. Oh, yeah. I, I like the term you used that they were just a slaughter of tacos. <laughs> it was a slaughter of fish. Uh, on top of, I think there's shells in there. I'm looking at it right now, and um, I don't think you could have picked those up. No. Um, in any way, I met Ash uh, several years ago. Um, Ash is uh, a amazing designer in the software realm, but uh, hence our topic today. She also works in the analog space uh, and does a, a ton of creative work um, on her own. For those of you that don't know, DIY stands for do it yourself. And I think you're like one of those people that it exemplifies that, that I've met. Um, I think one of the first things I realized about you was that you, uh, as much as you're talented on a computer, you're pretty amazing at just putting stuff together with your hands. And I'm curious, like, at what point uh, in your youth some, did something happen that, like, got you excited to, like, make stuff? Or, like, did you have a moment? Or was there something that you did the first time and you're like, oh, this is amazing? Like, what? inspired you to be that way that's a good question i uh, in my youth i definitely was a bookish secluded child and my parents were like working full-time for the man for banks and so i kind of was on my own a lot of the day and my brother and i would like play together and stuff but it was mostly just me entertaining myself and so i just got on this huge kick of like drawing and making stuff and writing stories and i was just always fascinated with imaginary worlds I think a lot of it was like I was always trapped in my house there were no sidewalks in my neighborhood so you couldn't just like go to your friend's house or like wander down the street or anything where so did you grow up I grew up in Connecticut Connecticut connect I cut okay so was there like a moment where you like picked up a pencil and like, like I I remember the smell of crayons like that was inspirational to me when I was young because I, I, cr I colored all the time like was there a moment where you pick something up and you're like I can make something with this or the one that I really remember is Legos. Okay. Like, we would just build these huge architectural... We had those, like, big red bins that have, like, the hundred Legos. Yeah. And so we would just build, like, crazy architectural things just with whatever we had. And occasionally you'd get, like, the new set that has, like, the weird flame or something. You're like, ooh, this is, like, a non-conventional <laughs> piece. But I think Legos was a big one. And then... Yeah, I don't know what it was about drawing, but it just felt like I had al I've always drawn stuff right did you have a moment where someone praised you for making something this is a question i ask people oh, of our ilk good, that's a good question i don't know that i did and i think that was helpful for me interesting yeah because, so it was more just for you yeah because my parents were like good you're doing something and not being idle that was like the big thing they were like you can't just like wander around the house that was like they're like no 
So I was always like reading or drawing or something and they didn't care what was coming out. They were just cared that I was being industrious. Got it. Which I think was actually in a weird way good for my psyche cuz it taught me like oh you just do the work, do the work and then like no one's going to comment at all on it or like acknowledge it and so just like do what you're going to do. Did you like was stuff hung on the fridge? Like what happened no. with Did anything happen with your output like at that point like when you're however old seven eight i don't know i'm just making that up no i would just like save them in like giant stacks we had a non-magnetic fridge which like my parents <laughs> it was like an explicit choice and you know they were like tiger parents they were like oh with 98 on a test where the other two points this is not worthy of a fridge even if we we're gonna hang it on here <laughs> we're going to get a non-magnetic fridge that's how much we want you to feel the just the the, the hard cold reality of life nothing will be hung on this fridge that is super interesting because my my parents hung everything on the fridge. Like I would bring home a you know a drawing, a stupid little test or whatever. Which I there's actually some hanging over there that I <laughs> saved from like second and third grade. But I would bring home something. And my mom would always like put it up on the fridge. How like do you think thing. that affected you? Uh, I it's funny because I don't feel like they cared that much about my artistic ability. They were just glad I was doing it, which maybe is along the lines of what you're saying. Yeah, I think it's it's weird because it's like similar in motivation, but like completely different in what actually ended up happening. Right. Were, like, were they artists at all? Like, were either of your parents? No. I think my mom had drawn a bit when she was young, but she was very like, even when I was doing art as a kid, she was like, this is a good hobby, but eventually you'll have to... Oh, the, fess up the classic a line lady. I know this is just a hobby oh my gosh my entire childhood they were like you yeah. can do whatever you want as long as you get good grades and that was yeah. always the thing it was like you if you were over this line like we won't you can do whatever right just don't like set anything on fire or kill anyone or anything but yeah like the if then statements I remember mm -hmm. buying a cassette uh, I'm not gonna say what band because <laughs> I'm old but I remember my mom bought me a cassette and she said you can have this after you mow the grass. Like, <laughs> this will be your reward for mowing the grass. And I remember negotiating, which has helped me with my career now, and saying, what if I l get to listen to it while I cut the grass? Oh, that's and very she, clever. And she went for it. She went for that. Um, I think it's it's funny uh, thinking about the fact, like, my, I didn't see my parents as artists when I was young, but my mom was a painter, and my dad was, like, completely sports guy. How do we get to this place? How do we get to this place where we're not like there's an if then for us, right? Like if you do this, then you get to do this fun quote unquote stuff. How do we get to a place where we figure out that this is stuff that's really important to us and we don't really care about the output, about the um, the opinion? Like it's we're not doing it for uh, accolades. Like how do we get there? Like do you have do you have moments like yeah. that you think about that? Like. Because I can get into all the, the amazing shit you've done, but I'm just curious, like, from a motivational... It's funny because my parents, like, bless their hearts, they're, like, you know, a little more reserved with their emotions. Meanwhile, like, as a child, I don't know where I got this, but I just yeah. have, like, an excess of emotions. And so a lot of, like, learning to manage that and figuring out how to kind of move through the world was figuring that out myself. And a lot of that was through all the media I was consuming, frankly. Hmm. where you could see like different people and everything. So when you're kind of isolated, I think media can be a good escape for that, where you figure out 
how other people live their lives. And they had some study that were like, people who read are more empathetic. And of course, all the like people who read novels are like, ha ha, look. <laughs> you know, it's like, here's another thing to lord over everyone else. Because readers love to do that. But <laughs> they do. It's weird. It's like a weird, like, I still read. I like, know. It's like, look, a paper book. Love. <laughs> gifts, gifts and pictures. I read words. Exactly. And so I think that's maybe what it was is it helped me outwardly fulfill something that I mean, normally you would have to ask someone else for, but you could self-serve. And part of my identity thing as a child was I was like very independent mm. and I always wanted to do things myself. I still have that streak where I have to like watch myself where I'm like, I can do it myself. Don't tell me what to do. Mm. And so you're the oldest. No, I'm the middle. Oh, middle. And so child. I'm used to being completely unsupervised because mm, mm-hmm. my family in general was like rather unsupervised. But me particularly, I was like very unsupervised as the middle child. You could have gone either way. Yeah. I mean, you could go wild child. Oh, yeah. Well, you're the- in the family, you'll laugh at this. I was like the wild child. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to laugh at that. I did laugh at that. I, I did laugh at that. <laughs> So did you go to school for art? Like, did you, like, what was your path? Like, how did you come up with the fact that you're creative? As yeah. Like, Poof, I'm creative. I randomly got an email when I was 16 or 17 years old that said, come to this pre-college design program. And I was like, I really want to go to this. Design is very interesting to me because it's like art, but there's something else about it that I didn't quite understand. I was like, there's something else about design. A paycheck? Yes, probably that. <laughs> and all the like ingrained stuff that my parents had told me was sure. like kicking in. But so I was like, I'm going to convince my parents who had never let me go to sleepaway camp ever. Got they it. were like, you can't go to any sleepaway camp. You have to stay home for the summer where we know where you are. That's fascinating. And so I convinced them to let me go to this program. Finally, I was like, I haven't been to any sleepaway camps. I'm cashing in that like, <laughs> and then this is, you're still in high school at this point. Yes. I'm, I'm still in high school and they were like, not that into it, but it wasn't that long. So they were like, fine. Um, and they were like, I was like, it'll look good on my resume. And I think that's what sold them. Sure. When I started applying to college. Practicality. Yeah. And so uh, I did a design pre-college program. And I think that was when I started to learn exactly what design was. And there was something appealing that it was very creative, but it was also something you could explain. Hmm. And so after that, I was pretty hooked on design. And then I just went to Carnegie Mellon and applied there for college, early admission. So this class was learning, sitting down at a computer learning design, or was it more like physical? Oh, yeah, it was pretty much all physical. I think we got oh, a got computer it. once to do CD covers, but otherwise it was like model making, drawing. Got it. Yeah. Like physical, hands-on, mm-hmm. practical, which... Is so, uh, I want to bookmark that. We can come back to it. But I think that's such a, that's something I want to get into for the DIY stuff. Oh, yeah. Which is when you're making stuff with your hands versus not making stuff with your hands. Anyway, so you go to, you go to Carnegie Mellon and uh, computer science? Uh, communication design. Communication mm-hmm. design. Okay. But I, I mean, I've gone there a bunch for the confluence. Oh, yeah. And I feel like it's this wackadoodle thing where people pick their program. Uh, and designers tend to come from all, like they say they're a designer, but they've done all these different, like there's all these different paths that, that it seems like CMU lets people take. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the things where I was begrudgingly like, okay, parents, like you were right. It was nice being part of a larger university, not only cause you're, you know, I had like friends like drama or, or who are singing opera or right. something, but 
you know, I could go take poetry class. I could go take a biology class. I could do all these other things. And there were a lot of kids in my design classes who were like information systems majors or other random stuff. So it was kind of nice to have that mix. There was always like a core that was like you had to be a design major to take certain classes. But I liked having that more liberal artsy Background. Yeah, it seems it, it's 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 an interesting dichotomy because it does feel liberal arts, but yet people think of CMU and they think it's like this hardcore like program of this is what you have to do to succeed. But everyone I talk to from there is like, oh yeah, I was like a, I'm like a quadruple major that I came up with on my own, and <laughs> it felt it feels progressive to me is I guess where I'm coming from because there's not you know I deal with designers and I talk to a lot of people in design programs and there's not that many design programs that really lead to creativity. Mm -hmm. on some level did you feel like you were because you were communication design like did you feel like it was a fostering like did you feel nurtured while you were there like your creativity or was it she's nodding her head Mm -hmm. like it didn't (laughs) because you know sometimes these design programs are like here's what you're gonna go you're gonna go into the world you're gonna take this title you're gonna do this job you're gonna have these skills so i'm just curious like yeah I think one of the things I really appreciated about Carnegie Mellon is that they did have very rigorous education. Like we had to do assignments like drawing a hundred lines and they were like, your lines aren't straight, draw a hundred wow. more. Wow. So it definitely did have that Military rigor. precision. Oh yeah. And it was like, Drop I- Drop and give me a hundred lines. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> what were you using? A pencil? Yeah. Just a Prismacolor pencil. And I just remember these pencils- if you drop them on the floor, it would shatter the light inside. So you have to go buy a new one. So people would just have like six or seven. And then inevitably you you just hear the noise of like the pencil dropping the floor and everyone at like 11 at night just like, (gasps) like looks and he's like, who was it? (laughs) And then be like, okay, you can like take one of my spare pencils. And so it was like, what a brilliant business model for them. Oh, I know. If you drop our pencil, you're going to need another one. (laughs) You're going to have to go buy another. You can't break it in half and resharpen it. It's like the iPhone of pencils. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it was interesting because the first two years were extremely, like, it was just, like, very rigorous. Like, you had to do things a certain way. These are all the rules. If you break them, we'll laugh at you. Yeah. And the whole class will pillory you. But then after that, they were like, oh, also, you should be, like, in the same vein. They're like, you should care about what you're designing. You should care about your users. And so they put that same rigor into not just the rules, but once you had learned the rules, they had this opening up where it was like, oh, you should care about the people you're making for and stuff. And that's where the rigor started to transfer. So it was very sneaky. They're like, mm. we give you the structure. So you start to feel competent. And mm-hmm. then we start like taking the structure and like morphing it into something different. Mm. So I think that's why most of the people that I know and graduated from CMU, even years later have mm-hmm. that kind of base where they do want to like do the right thing. And I think it's you say like what other people, which I think is funny because creative people, uh, you can get into many conversations with why they make stuff, right? Like um, sometimes you do stuff because you want you want someone to do something, right? You're, it's a user experience. Let's call it that for lack of a better phrase, even though it's pretty trite. <laughs> but then sometimes you do stuff. It's just for you. But like for me, I'm a musician. When I write a song, I think it's just for me. But then I put it out into the world and people hear it and they have opinions on it. You know, maybe it, it affects them in some way. Yeah. So I think it's it's interesting to think about art in that way. And, and, and when we get back to the DIY thing that I'm thinking about, like, I think DIY and thinking about doing things for yourself, do it yourself, really does come down to you're doing it because you have this impulse within you and you want to get it out. Yeah, for sure. And 
I think about this a lot because especially with this idea of like designer versus artist, I mm. think that's like a hot topic. Yeah. I often am feeling when I'm making art that it still feels like I'm making it for someone, but I'm not sure who it is. And right. a lot of the time it feels like it's for a younger version of me. Like Interesting. it's something that I would have, I, that I needed at some point and then doing the art both helps me digest and like figure my way out through it. Mm. But then also is like useful as if, if there's anyone down the line, I'm like, here you go. Here's like a little, right. little thing that might help you get where I am faster and like digest what you've been through a little bit faster. Right. So uh, one of the things I want to talk about was this analog thing you did, which I, I said to you, <laughs> I said to you before we started recording, like, what do you call that? But uh, so Ash did this thing where you signed up and basically you get some stuff in the mail I think I got two packages from you. I feel like yeah, it was a subscription I was trying out. Whereas, like, instead of it was basically like a birch box or something for paper goods. Yeah, and it was it for so for me, my motivation for doing it was to get myself on a schedule to like make stuff. Interesting. Yeah, and so I was like, oh, so, I would have to do like a collection, basically. So you give yourself a deadline. Yeah. And did you like say I need four things? Like, yes. What was the next? Yeah, I try to come up with a theme. So I think one of the themes was like night. So there's like a collection of poems right. and then some other stuff. But yeah, it, it was just like making around a theme. And I think I was really, before I started doing that, a little paralyzed where I was like, oh, I don't want to start selling things. I'm scared right. to make goodies. And right. so this was kind of like a way to be like, okay, like you have people who are waiting for these things now so you have to do it did you get the people before you produced the product i did yeah and i i'd started designing the first batch before people signed up for a subscription but yeah i was like i don't know what's gonna happen and honestly not that many people signed up i think you're one of like three people so it was like kind of fun because you i could actually like put time and care into backing everything uh, but it's, I think even that was enough. Even if it was just like one person, I think it would have been enough to be kind of like lighting a fire in her Where did ass. that go? Like how many did you do, end up doing before you kind of like cut it? I only did a couple. Okay. Yeah. It's like. Because I'm still waiting for my last shipment. That's all I'm saying. Oh. I'm just kidding. I have, I have no idea. so much how many stuff you, for you. Well, see, you should just send it. <laughs> I'm just going to send you stuff. Yeah. <laughs> just get a huge file in the mail. Yeah. Because after that, I was like, oh, like I can do stuff. And so that hesitance was kind of broken so well as i said to you earlier like i, I actually gave some of it away to other people which they thought yeah. was amazing and then i got this great story to tell well this is my friend who hand makes stuff and then she sends it to you <laughs> in the mail and you don't know what you're gonna get which is kind of awesome um i'm reminded i just read uh, an article this week and i can't remember where of course because everything's everywhere of course um but it was a take on the whole andy warhol everyone's famous for 15 minutes and the article said the new version is everyone's famous to 15 people, which oh, I thought was a I really that. interesting. They're saying now we're getting to the point where each, you know, if you're an artist or a creative person, there's probably this small, loyal group of people that loves your stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that seems to be the more of the norm. You know, if, if you think about like all the ways we get our stuff out there now with social media. and That's like, an amazing quote. Yeah. Because it's it was, so true. Well, I had a moment where I'm like, shit. 15 people and then i was like wait a minute 15 people you're affecting their lives in some way oh yeah with the stuff you're making yeah yeah i had this realization when i was making stuff that you really don't 
need to read not only from like a business sense but just from like a soul sense you don't actually need that many people to sustain you right which is kind of amazing right because i think i did the math and i was like if i had one to two thousand people who were like obsessed with everything and bought every single thing that i made yeah i could just like easily support myself like no problem whatsoever and then if i have half that it's like oh i'd be making like actually like good money right which is like weird to think about right where it's like i think especially after like a lot of the work that i've done in silicon valley it's like oh you have to get everyone on this platform like Mm -hmm. this has to be universal and like everyone needs to use it and then it's just like you don't really need that to be sustainable right well i mean there's pretty much every example out there of why growth isn't always the best thing like no feeling like you need to grow as a company yeah why do we why do people why do companies feel compelled to do that yeah and i think that's a really good lesson to learn also as like an artist yeah where you have to just decide like do you want sustainability and to the freedom to do what you need to do Mm -hmm. because once you start that game of like growing stuff even as an individual like growing your platform or something like there's certain things you can't do anymore right like i know a lot of people who have a huge internet following if they say anything about politics they didn't realize like half of their followers are like not into that. Right. And you're just like, they were like, who are these people? Context. Yeah. And then so like, you know, you do give up some of that if you want to like remain big. It's just like, you can't do certain stuff. Right. And it's, but then the other side is like, you're doing that because you feel compelled to do it. Yeah. So maybe are those people still important to you? Exactly. Like, are you speaking to You have to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of that, let's talk about uh, how many novels have you written now? Two? I have written two. I'm working on the third. I'm like 220 pages deep to the third one, mm-hmm. but that one's going to be a long one. So the second one I'm sending to print. Cause it's Fingers not, crossed. Yeah, it's not out in the world yet. Yeah. I have your first one. Yes. Um, which I've read three pages of. <laughs> That's more than but I would expect. I'm going to read it. It's on my pile. There's, oh, there's, good. you're up there with some other amazing authors. So oh, don't, it will get flattering. there. But I wanted to talk to you. <laughs> well, I, you know, part of me is like, should I bum rush this before we talk? And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be real and be like, I haven't finished, haven't, you know, haven't gotten there. I'm curious what, because uh, we're talking about DIY and you did that first book all on your own. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think we had lunch one time and you were telling me, like, oh, well, here's where I like got it printed. And like, you gave me a bunch of stuff. Because clearly I'd like to write a book, but haven't done it yet. What um, what was the biggest challenge once you knew, because we were talking about earlier, you had the subscription service, but you didn't have, like, did you have the idea for the book first? Like, what was the order yeah, of so... DIY-ness in doing your first self-published book? <laughs> that book was funny. I The Fire Steel. The Fire Steel. I had no idea what I was doing. And I think that was one of the harder parts, but... I mean, I am used to kind of feeling that way of just being like, I don't know, let's figure it out. Sure. But the idea for the book I got when I was like 14 years old. Oh, wow. And so it's obviously very different from that book. That's when I was like, you know, super into like Pegasuses and stuff, which are still cool. Pegasuses We're going to awesome. go there. We need it's to bring cool. them back. Yes. Just a story I feel about... like unicorns took over for Pegasuses. I know. And, that's and they not, can't I don't even think fly. Right. They can only gore things. <laughs> unicorns are junk. They're just... I'm gonna put, we should put that in the next job Unicorns listing. Unicorns are junk. Only Pegasuses may yeah. apply. But so I started, uh, and I just stopped writing basically when I went to college, and I was just very deep in design. Sure. I was just like part of the cult of design, wanted yep. to be like deep into something. And then after college, I got this itch to write again, and so I did like a little bit of it, and then I put it back on the shelf again. 
And then I had this moment where I was reading something and I was like, man, I should probably write a book. And then all these like voices in my head, which are just like, nope. I was like, why would you do that? You're a designer. Right. You know, I, I remember distinctly there was a professor I had in school. He was an adjunct professor, though. Mm, so he was not there at the time. And <laughs> yeah, I just brought him my portfolio and he was like, why are you writing all of this? You're not a writer. You're a designer. Mm. And I was like, when I think back of like, what's the worst advice I've ever heard? I was sure. like, that's that's probably up there. I, You know what? I went through something very similar. Which yeah. I wanted to get into. Um, I just want to jump in because identity has been coming up. Oh, uh, yeah. This is the third podcast I've recorded. Identity of who we are based on our art. Like, we feel like we have to say, well, I'm this because this is what pays me. Yeah. Like, I'm a software designer. I'm a, a, a creative recruiter. But yet, that's not necessarily who we are. It's just what we instinctively say. Yeah. When someone says, what are you? It really comes down to, like, what you get paid to do. Yeah, and I think it makes it easier. Maybe. Maybe it's and a I validation. Think, cause yeah. But, you know, you could say, I'm a published author. Oh, yeah. I, if you're at a party, you could say that. <laughs> when I, I'm a novelist. When I first started freelancing, I would get such a kick out of going to parties and people were like, oh, like, where do you work? And I was like, oh, I'm just an independent designer. And people would like rush to like my quote unquote rescue and be like, oh, but she's worked at this company and that company and that right, company right. and worked with these people. And right. then I was just like, no, I want to see how this person's going to treat me. Right. Like, it's just the very beauty and the beast, like the old lady at the beginning who's actually like the, like, right. <laughs> like, the like golden fairy godmother sure, or whatever. No yeah, because I just like, I'm interested to see how people treat each other. But it, but interesting currency. in that situation, in that scenario, it's I think it's more about how those people are self-identifying. Exactly. And what's important to them. It's like when you go to an LA coffee shop and oh, you just yeah. uh, eavesdrop for 10 minutes and all you hear is like <laughs> so-and-so's manager and so-and-so's agent. Like you hear all these names. And I think here, uh, it's here it's a little less of the name dropping and more of the brand slash company dropping. Oh, I hear yeah. that all the time. 100%. Well, you know, he's working at this company and mm -hmm. I think he knows someone. And it's just like... Yeah, and we all do. So, yeah, and I'm like, you know, go what's to your greatest fear? What do you think this place would have looked like 300 years ago? And they're just like, okay, let's play this game. <laughs> um, I want to get back to the book. Oh, so yes. you did the Kickstarter. I did. Uh, anyway, you still haven't answered. Yes. What happened? What came first? Okay. Like, did you 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 know you wanted to write? And this idea was when you were young. Yes. The idea for the kernel of the story. Yep. And then so what happened is I ended up writing this book first draft was very confusing and strange and so a couple friends read it they were like yeah this is fine and I was just like as I was kind of having some distance from it and hearing this kind of feedback of like uh okay what is this <laughs> um oh, I was like oh I understand now I was like I understand what this story actually is about and like everything else is a distraction. So I rewrote it again and I hired an editor. Right. That's I remember you telling me yes. that. Always hire an editor. Which was amazing, especially so she was like a she's a great editor. Mm -hmm. And for me it was a lot like design school where you only learn by doing and then getting an expert to tell you. Got it how it appears mm -hmm. and so that to me felt very familiar i was like be as harsh as possible i'm used to having my work like turned upside down or like backwards so it can't be seen because it's bothering the professor like i'm used to that so just be harsh yeah like i have no ego around this i just want this to be a good piece of work and so i went through a couple of rounds with her which is super helpful it just improved it greatly and i learned a ton about writing that way where's your ego during this process oh you have to just lock it away i mean yeah. for me generally this was like one of the best things I got out of design school because I'm very 
if you if I was just like in my natural state, I'm pretty conflict averse. I'm just like, why can't we play cooperative games? Like, <laughs> I don't want to compete with you. But like, yeah. So I think a lot of design school is me just like hardening that shell and not taking anything personally because it's it's a weird thing though because you're asked not to take it personally when people critique your work mm -hmm. and then your work is literally your personhood yeah. and so it's kind of a weird thing you have to deal with but in regards to my work unless somebody's just being like a jerk and like oh you're stupid and like your work is silly you mm -hmm. know i'm usually like okay i'll think about what you said i'll like right. put it away let it sit and then take a look at it and see if you're right. Like, I don't have ego around my work, really. And it comes back to the question of, are you doing it for you or are you doing it for somebody else? Yeah. Like, whose opinion really matters here? Yeah, and there's totally times where you sit with critique, you think about it, and you're like, no, I think I have justification to do what I'm going to do. But right. I think that waiting period is, like, crucial. Yeah, yeah. I think there's um, there's also something to be said for if it's a if it's a project that other people are already involved in from from the seed yeah to its fruition or if it's something that you're just doing for yourself oh absolutely yeah. and like there's nobody asking me to write a book i was right. there's like any of these books nobody's asking for it like, right god forbid it's like nobody who even knows if anybody wants it that's fine uh, kind of liberating yeah right like if this book sucks like no one asked me to do it no one's paying me to do oh, it. oh yeah i'm doing it on my own i'm doing it on my own like my own pocket yeah my own money i mean i guess the kickstarter thing does add this other layer. oh yeah However, Which, I did not turn a profit from that Kickstarter. Of course. So. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty rare that people do. Yeah. How many copies got printed? Like, what was the So outcome? I printed 500 paper copies. To date, including eBooks. I've sold 400 That's amazing. Which is pretty good for an indie uh, book. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's and like 80% so, sold. <laughs> if my math yes, is right. Except there are a lot of ebooks sold, so I still have a cabinet filled with you just open it, it's just like fire steel. Oh, I get it. I have, <laughs> I fact, you if have you look over your shoulders, there's CDs and LPs <laughs> un, un unsold, like the analog thing. And I think um that for me is uh is interesting because sometimes I will judge based on that. Like how many people really wanted this thing? Mm -hmm. Uh but it's not maybe it's not that they didn't want it. But it's maybe like this isn't a format they care about. Yeah. Right. Like that's a that's a hard puzzle to entangle. With music, it's a little different because yeah. people can just stream your shit, or you know, yeah. I made a video and you can hear my song, and it's attached to this visual imagery. But you know, in the in the in the pre-streaming times oh, yeah. or this, the, the pre-ebook times, <laughs> like it was literally a physical thing that you could tell how many copies were sold or how many copies got taken or whatever. So it's it's interesting. It's a different time, I think. It is, no. and I think that's we're all trying to like figure it out together. I think, yeah. which is like such a strange thing. I think that like I don't really care. I, I think I got. I remember very specifically my band in like 2005 had a record out. I'll say record because I'm old. Um, <laughs> we had CDs, and I was super happy with it. And I noticed like we went and played shows. Like we would play out of town. We left New York, went to Detroit and Cleveland, and all these places. And um, people were like way more buying them oh, at yeah. shows yep. in those areas than they were in New York City at that point. Because in New York City, I don't know, it was like we were already post the artifact mm -hmm. of the art on some level. Yeah. So when we would play out of town, we would people would like walk up and say, here's $10, please give me this thing. And as time went on, that also disappeared. Because pretty soon there's not even a, there, you know, your car doesn't have a CD player, your laptop doesn't have a CD player. 
And you have to like kind of do, for me, I had to do this mental switch where it's like, okay, it doesn't mean people aren't listening to your stuff. Yeah. You know? And that's why like you talk about eBooks and I'm like, yeah, like how do you... Oh, it's super weird too because also with a novel, yeah. my novel is like, it's like short. Like the Fire Slay, you could yeah. bang out in like five or six oh, hours I'm gonna, easy. I'm gonna. And, uh, but still like people don't, not everyone wants to read a novel. Right. And I'm sure you have the same thing where it's like not everyone wants to listen to like music or like, you know, it's just like some people just don't want to do it. Right. And you're like, all right. Well, even like I put yeah. off, I put off doing this podcast for like six months. Yeah. Because I'm like, like anyone cares about another <laughs> podcast. Like another thing where two people are talking about some shit. But then I was like, you know what? Like this is what I, I'm doing it for me. Like I love talking to you and I like hearing about process and like, why do people get excited to do these things that, Mo- for the most part, they're not making any money doing. Yeah. But this is the thing that, like, is the most important. Oh, yeah. You know? Which brings me to the next thing, which uh, which is, uh, and we share this, that we both work in the uh, ecosphere of uh, economy. <laughs> but not necessarily because uh, it's what we're compelled to do. For me, I'm not going to speak for you, but for me, it washes the hand of being able to do this kind of thing or being able to do my music. And I think that that's one of the bigger things I kind of want to address, which is how Mm -hmm. do you balance that out? Because I know you took a little time off, Mm -hmm. let's say, even though you were working Mm -hmm. on and off. Did you feel you were more creative during that time? Did you feel you had more energy for the DIY creativity stuff because you weren't clocking in and clocking out at the same place day after day after day? It's funny because I have been thinking a lot about coming just come off of freelance, what that gave me. Because I think there are different phases of your life and you get different things from each phase. And when I went freelance, I was like, oh, I'm going to do this forever. I'm free. Like, ha ha. I remember you were pretty psyched. Oh, yeah. No, it was like, you were like, woohoo. Oh, yeah. No strings attached. I come and go as I please. They pay me. And it was great. And, you know, I did it for like over two and a half years yeah. and I was only really starting to get stressed and unhappy in the last like couple months, mm. which is when I took a full-time job. But I basically wanted, I needed to get this from thing for myself where I determined my own schedule mm. and like, cause if you think about it, you grow up, you go to school, you go to college maybe, and then you get a job. Yeah. And there's always expectations of it's not like necessarily somebody is like looking over your shoulder or like telling you what to do. But there is like a cultural norm, quote unquote, of when to wake up, when you go to work, yeah. when you eat lunch, when you do X, Y, Z. And then this was the first time in my life, I think, where I could just do what I wanted when I needed to do it. Yeah. And so I found out a lot about my own personal rhythms of like, you know, I have like a work cycle where it's all be productive, really productive for three weeks I find. And then the fourth week I have to like kind of like cocoon and chill. Mm. And then just like I do the cycle over and over again, Mm -hmm. but I never would have really discovered that cadence, which is helpful for me now in my real life when I'm like, Oh, why am I having a productive week? Let's see what part of the calendar it is. And I can be like, okay, it's like this time of the month. So I'm not going to be productive this week and that's fine. And then next week I'll be fine. Yeah. But there's all these things that I wouldn't have known unless I had been on my own. And so that was really important for me formatively. The reason I left was I started to, first of all, get like really bad with interfacing with people. Mm. I am very introverted. I could, I went on a three week road trip by myself with my dog. That's right. And it, I was like, I could have gone for longer. I was like, I missed my boyfriend, but that's about it. Like, wow. I didn't need 
the interaction like wasn't that important to our just like hike and like do a little bit of client work, yeah. but it was mostly just like writing my book. I wrote like hundreds of pages. Amazing. And this is the second book. This is the yet. first book. Oh, yeah. This is when you did Firestone. Okay. I think. I don't know. I don't remember. I can't remember either. I remember following along on social media. Oh, yeah. That's all I remember. <laughs> and it was really fun, but I never would have been able to do that. And, but the problem is, you know, left to my own adv- devices, I'll just do that all the time, yeah. which feels good but i've discovered is not even being really introverted like i do need some human interaction (laughs) so that's the answer then the answer is you still need the balance of other people yeah you gotta get inspired exactly and being in the world i think i have to i really have to force myself to be in the world because i'm kind of like like earthly matters i have to really focus on like even when i'm driving or mm-hmm. something i have to really focus to stay here and mm-hmm. not like wander off into yeah. like my brain somewhere yeah so i think there is this balance of it's funny because i i have a professional coach and she was telling me that she's like you know i've been thinking a lot about this idea of getting everything you want and how mm-hmm. healthy that is for you mm-hmm. and she's like i vacillate back and forth but right now i'm kind of on this phase where i'm like is it always really good to get every single thing you want? Right. And it's like, don't know. I don't know that it is. Yeah. Because I think, well, there's it's double-edged sword because there might be a party that's like, you'll always want more. Yeah. Like, that seems to be humanity's, you know. It's evolutionary. Problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, no matter how much you have, it's like, you know, how much money do we need? Oh, well, I know. We can spend all we have and then try to get some more. Yeah. You know, it's like that whole conundrum. And I think when I think about the times of my life that I've been... Um, not full-time employed, like freelancing, piecing it together. I don't, I get a little nervous. So I'm, I don't think I'm as creative. So my creativity comes from, it's the other, you know, it's kind of like I'm in this role. I know I have to do these things, but when, you know, when I get that stuff done, then I'm energized. And then the time I have to like write a song or do a podcast or, um, whatever whatever stuff i'm doing creatively like i take it i don't take it for granted because i know that i have this other other obligation that i have which is weird there's something about rebellion and creation that go together in some way like this it's funny because creativity is like by definition a creative act like you're making stuff but there is some destructive element of it right Right. where you're like burning something down to like remake something totally and i think that having a job is a pretty uh, like even if you have a good job like i think it's a pretty safe way to have something to quote unquote destroy yeah because i think it's very easy i don't know if you had this as like a younger person but like i think it's really easy to get destructive in actually destructive ways Mm -hmm. and so you kind of have to like set these bumpers for yourself to make the art like really easy Mm -hmm. and one of those is like having something that you're destroying but it's like not really destructive (laughs) right right yeah like even if it's a work ethic on some level um yeah because you know am i going to put 110 percent into this thing i do or am i going to put 110 percent into this thing they want me to do right right there's kind of like a fu moment yeah like i'm going to rebel a little bit which is very interesting which gets me back to our topic diy (laughs) (laughs) because any company i've worked for has kind of started as a DIY. Like I think about the last few companies I've worked for, they all were these crazy things that someone just thought of and they're like, shit, I have to turn this into a thing because Mm -hmm. it's a crazy idea and I think it just might work. And then that goes from being this kernel of whatever it was for them, which I know we're both thinking of some of the same ones, (laughs) to all of a sudden there's a thousand employees trying to like replicate this sort of original inspiration. 
And that to me is, is that a, is that a productive thing or is that a destructive thing? I think it's so hard to say because I think if you enjoy those first phases of creating something Mm -hmm. to go from that to being like, and now I'm going to do the challenges of like, which 401k to choose for my employees. You know, it's like, it's a very different challenge. And some people like both. I have sure. power to them. Sure. And I think that is an interesting problem to some people. For yeah. me personally, though, I'm like, you know, I get restless if I'm on the same thing too long. I yeah. need some variety. Yeah. That's just like the way I am. Um, that's why I'm always doing like a million things. Cause I just like, I'm just like, give me the buffet. I want like yeah. the bento box, <laughs> but I, I don't, I think it's Good hard analogy. cause I see a lot of people who make these companies and like have great success, which yeah. is awesome. Get a whole bunch of employees, all of that. But right. then they're not doing the thing that they started the thing for in the first place. Right. And I'm like, that's a hard thing to reckon with. Right. Right. Well, I think it's like, you know, any, any team, you know, you think mm-hmm. about like a relay team in the Olympics, right? There's a great starter and there's a great finisher. They're not like, they're not the same person. Yeah. And there's, there's a pretty good chance they can't replace each other. And I think that, you know, when I think about my DIY stuff, like I tend to do things all by myself. I'll do the album. I'll do the, I'll do the instruments. I'll record it. <laughs> I'll do the artwork. I'll upload it. I get a certain satisfaction out of that. What I've found, especially as I get older is when I have collaborators on some level, I mean, I'm still the gatekeeper, you know, I'm still the, the whip cracker. But when I have collaborators, there is a different sense of satisfaction that I get from that. But it's not as fulfilling for me personally. Yeah, it feels like you can do more. Right. Like you're enabled, like quote unquote, I hate to use this word like resource wise. But you're, <laughs> no, it's true. you know, you, you can do more right. with a team. Right. But there is just something, and it's like hard to put a finger on what it is, right. but it's just like, it does change. Things. Like the last few records I've done, I've done with other people in other studios. And now like my, the, the project I'm tracking right now is me in this room <laughs> recording everything to that tape machine by myself. You know, like I need to like do the complete opposite of what I've done for the last year. And it's weird that I need both of those things. Which gets me back to like working a day job Mm -hmm. and then rebelling against that and doing this thing. Even though it's still art, I still have these like weird tensions that need to need to happen for me to to get excited again. Yeah. On some level. That's true. Or even parameters. And that's that's going back to your book, like you do a Kickstarter and I guess there's parameters that you have to put in up front. Yep. And those parameters are gonna help determine like at some point where you're like, I can only make this book X amount of pages. I'm just curious, like, um, how did there, the process go for that? It was funny because I think, so I queried very half-heartedly. Whenever I query agents, I do it very half-heartedly. Because sure. I'm just like, I'm not going to, eight weeks is a long time to wait. Yeah. And if somebody does take on your book, it's like another X months if sure. it ever gets, and it, they, it's just very likely that it will never sell. Yeah. And then when you're doing your own thing, like making your own book, I was like, I didn't have to worry about page. Like my book right now, my second book is quote unquote, an unsellable book because it's only X pages. Interesting. Which is like, it's funny because everyone I know is like, Oh, that book was too long and I couldn't finish it. And then like, but the market says that. So it's like very weird to like contend with these two worlds. Right. But I guess the people who buy books, I mean, I buy thick books, so who right. knows? I, I have a copy of Infinite Jest that I still haven't read. Oh, yeah, I have I've that had one, it too. for years. <laughs> I've read, like, 10 pages. There. It's, it's good. There. It's a tome. But you have to, like, dig. That's one of those, like, books that's, like, yeah. work. 
not I, bad work, but you have to like really. And I keep through. thinking I'm gonna, I'll get to it. Yeah. Oh yeah. But that's how just, I am too. It's so thick. Well, but that okay. That goes back to something we talked about earlier, which is okay. This 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 size of book is gonna sell. Right. But if it's not that big, it won't. But then who gives a fuck? Yeah. If it's a book you're writing for yourself. That's exactly what it is. Because the second book, I literally wrote it as a really short book, a 60-page book, as like a palate cleanser. Yeah. Just to get, because I had been so deep in the fire still for yeah. so long yeah. that I had to like kind of like emerge out of that universe. So this book is pretty different tone-wise and also subject-wise from that book. Got it. Um, my third book, I think, is a little more in line with the fire steel, but I just needed something to be like, you're a writer. You're sure. not a writer of this book only. Yeah. And so I was like, I'll just write this quick 60-page thing. I'll just give it away. I don't know what's going to happen. And sure. my editor is actually the one who convinced me to make it into something longer. Interesting. And it's like, I was like, this is just how long it's going to be. This is how long it needs to be for me to, like, say what I need to say, to, like, explore these themes that I want to explore. And that's, like, it. Do you have, like, a like a process? Like, do you have to go sit in a certain spot, <laughs> have a certain type of tea, certain music? Like, what's your – or do you just, like, shit, I have an idea. I have to sit down and write it. It depends. I try. So I have some weeks where I just like write a ton. Mm -hmm. And I think this goes against conventional advice where they're like, you're supposed to write every day for a consistent amount of time. That is such bullshit. And I'm just like, good luck with that. (laughs) You know, it's just hard. And it's like, I don't even have like kids and stuff. But like, that's like a huge demand. And actually, my favorite quote about this type of thing was from I think Liz Gilbert says something about it where she was like, if it's going well, you can sit down for 10 minutes and get a shit ton done totally and i think that's like the thing but for me i'll have times where so i have like a very visual memory i have like the opposite of that thing where you can't visualize anything where you know i can like clearly visualize people's faces and stuff inside my head and so i'll just have like a scene come up where i'm like oh so and so needs to do X. So you'll see a physical scene sometimes, and then you have to write. Yeah, that scene and then so in the words. That's amazing. Usually, what I'll do is like I'll send an email to myself and just like mm-hmm. describe the scene. And yeah. since it's visual and I have a really good visual memory, I'll like remember and I can like play it back mm-hmm. when I go to write it. Mm-hmm. So that's usually how I do that. And so I'll do like a rough outline. That's kind of my first step. Mm-hmm. Usually, there's like a theme that I want to talk about nowadays. I mean, in my first book, I was like, I don't know. The theme merged after I wrote because I like didn't know how to write. Write a book. There's yeah. my theme. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. wouldn't it be cool if this plot happened and that plot <laughs> happened? And then I was like, no, this is about like the vestiges of your memory, yeah. like our shame of our 20, like all these like themes came out. And I was like, okay, so just delete everything else. And like, this yeah. is the backbone and you do it. And so it's interesting seeing myself in these second and third books where I'm like, oh, these themes are. So like the book I'm writing right now, my third book is a lot about like masculinity and if really archaic masculinity has a place now and like Mm -hmm. how the world reacts to it and all these things that affect us that we don't know and the fact that we're there's like themes of immortality but it's you know applicable to you know it's like a fable so sure it's like you yourself are in some sense immortal because of all this baggage you've had from the past all the of human history is like part of you and that's like the theme that's like big part of the book it's heavy dude yeah but it's like I know that going in, yeah. and so like I can make specific choices. I can like design the characters a certain way, yeah. and so I don't have to like rewrite everything. Hopefully, we'll see. What's that? <laughs> There's there the quote. I'm sure you'll know probably who it is. Like great design is take knowing what to take away. Yeah, I don't know who said that. That's yeah, probably some famous Dieter or somebody. <laughs> somebody. Some Dieter. <laughs> but one of my favorite stories about that is when Prince recorded the song 1999. You know how. I mean, I'll talk in music terms, but like the verses are like, he, like she sings and then 
the bass player sings and then Prince sings and then the very last stanza of the verse they're all singing together so they recorded the whole song where they were all singing together the whole way and he was when they were mixing it when they were like literally finishing the song he just started pulling out voices Mm -hmm. and it became this like awesome thing where the melodies all over the place and it's different voices and when they all come together at the end you're like shit this sounds amazing and it's like (laughs) this amazing song but I love stories like that where people like throw everything in and then they just start you know, they just start taking away and then you come up with this like all of a sudden like your editor was like if you are I came up with a theme okay this is where I need to strip out take away mm-hmm. take away take away which I think a lot of people that a lot of people that say they're not creative they have the opposite problem where they don't even know where to start whereas yeah. most of the people I know that make a lot of shit and I'll include you in this they're throwing so much into things that then they have to do the opposite they have to sit and be like okay how do I <laughs> How do I tame this so that it, it has it makes sense yeah. outside of me? But and that's where you get into like why do we do what we do, right? Like totally. I could sit and write a, an album a day and just like of me like making burping noises, yeah, and like <laughs> it won't satisfy me, so it probably won't satisfy anyone else. But there's this whole other side to it, which is if I sit down and say, what's really, what do I really, tr- what am I, what's my theme? What am I really trying to get out? Even doing this podcast, like everyone I want to talk to, like I'm trying to come up with a theme based on how, what I want to talk to them about, totally. which even you and I had that conversation before we started like, yeah, DIY seems to make <laughs> sense. Like we both do shit. That's like just ourselves. Yeah. I think it's awesome that you, uh, have had success. Like you're selling books. Like that's amazing. And do you think that that would be different if you only said you were an author? Like if you decided tomorrow to quit working and just write, it's funny because when I launched that book, a lot of people were like, so have you quit design and now you're an author? I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, that possibility had not even crossed my right, mind until right. someone asked me that. Right. And even now people are like, oh, so you're still writing books. And it's funny because I think people are very curious about it. It's not like a mean spirit or anything, but it's people are a like, hobby. what is, what are you, why are you doing this? Right. Like what's, what's in it for you? Like right. why? Right. <laughs> and, um, when I'm just like, I don't know, it's just something I do. Yeah. I like to read and I want to like write stuff that I would read. Like every, <laughs> there's so many interviews with, with, with people that are well-known musicians and actors and, and painters and all of them, even after they did this great work that got them, accolades still kept doing other things on the side oh yeah like you just like actors will be like yeah i wasn't ready to quit my like waiting i didn't want to stop waiting tables because i thought it was a (laughs) fluke you know and like musicians they're like yeah we were like we had a painting company on the side until our second record came out you know like i think we all have that like intrinsic thing that we want to (laughs) eat i yeah i think we never really want to talk about it but having stability just like makes life a lot simpler and you yeah. can like focus on the art. Cause like, God forbid you have to worry about correcting the world through art and feeding your kids. That's like, that's too much. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's like Michelangelo, how long did he have to paint the Sistine chapel and how much money did they, they put him <laughs> up and like, they're like, look, we're going to take care of so you can eat and totally. you'll have a place to sleep. But other than that, get up there. You know? Yeah. Like, like and that's that's pretty much all he, he was like oh you know I mean I don't I didn't know the guy but like he's probably <laughs> like yeah that's cool like all my stuff and that's where it gets weird where we talk about like how much do you need oh yeah you know because we come in the, we're in this like weird bubble here where we have these like pretty good paying jobs yeah. like servicing a, a a fairly substantial substantial excuse me community of people but at the same time we have this whole other side that we want to 
nurturing is important to us and I wouldn't want to give it up. Oh yeah. You know? So it's weird. It's like those times in my life where I haven't, like I've between jobs, like I only get so much, uh, I'm only relaxed for a certain amount of time Yeah. to like, I'm going go, you know to go to the studio every day. Uh huh. I'm going to work out every day, you know, all these, all <laughs> oh, these dreams. you know, if I just did, if I just had X amount of money, I could just X and I would do that. And yeah. it's just, it's not how it works. It's like, you, not. I think you tease yourself into that on some, like, or maybe that's like a, like a, like a distraction you give yourself. But. I think we're also tricked into thinking that where it's like, oh, if only X would happen, then like magically this would happen. And it gives people an excuse not to do it. Like the if man statement. Even for me, like I'll be like, oh, well, I can't. When I was freelancing, I was like, I can't spend time on that because I need to make X dollars from this job. And, sure. you know, focusing on this will give me tangible money versus doing my own stuff. It's yeah. like, especially if I got sucked into a hole and like I'm gone for totally. 12 hours. Like, totally. You're like, well, that's for me and that's cool, but. Well, do you, I mean, I, I will confess that I have like, I'll have moments at work where I'll just step into like a, another window and like do some stuff for my life. Oh yeah. Like I'm not like, I, I can't. think everybody does that. I hope. I hope so. Yeah. I hope Otherwise, so I'm too. Like, we're like, Ooh. like what? but I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that's to me, that is evolution at this point. Like you're, we're not like breaking rocks for eight hours a day. Right. Right. Like. We're moving into a space where, and maybe it, I mean, clearly it's going to continue to evolve when you think about like, not to get all crazy, but like AI and like jobs won't need to be done anymore. Oh, like yeah. what does that leave the idle hands? You know, like what are people yeah. going to do when I their mean, jobs are gone, when the skills they have are gone? That to me is where art does, yeah. should, how do we make more stuff? You know, what's like funny to me is I always, especially in these days and times, <laughs> you know, I, I always thought the goal was it's like oh we have to wait work eight hours but eventually everyone will just have lots of free time right you'll maybe work four hours a day and then right. like spend the rest of the time on your own stuff that was the dream that right. was the american dream right and somehow it's been so subverted into mm-hmm. like working yourself to death yeah like i was reading that article that came out there's one recently about the whole you know the like whole fiber ad that's been making their rounds and everyone's like really upset about it a fiber ad fiber Oh, Fiverr. Where they're like, F- oh, eat is coffee like for lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that company? I've seen it on the it's side of buses. It's basically like you pay five bucks and get like designers to make you designs and you pick one and you pay them $5. So it's like, oh. it's kind of like, I don't know. It's kind of gross. It's like pretty gross, but that's, no, that's just it's just like not livable gross. for those poor people. I don't know. It's just, I definitely appreciate like they're serving an audience that exists. So yeah, like, but... I get that, but it's just so like... Ugh. <laughs> that's okay really we can, that's a whole other podcast like yeah. the word design yeah being a designer oh yeah it's like so uh a couple years ago i was looking at someone's portfolio and they had themselves listed as an iphoneographer <laughs> what does that mean unironically <laughs> What does it mean? Well, I had to talk to them. Yeah. And I asked and he said, "Yeah, you know, I just uh, I see the world through my iPhone." And uh, that's my art. Like I take pictures and videos and it's, it all comes through my iPhone. So I consider myself an iPhoneographer. And I couldn't. Okay. <laughs> I had <Yeah>. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> like, I think in my head, I'm like, well, okay, you're not going to get paid to do that. I don't think. You right? know, probably he has a better chance of getting paid to do that than I probably have the chance doing my art. <laughs> 
just from what I've seen. But that's, I mean, that's part of it. Like, yeah. it's like when we think of like earlier, we talked about like, you know, uh, if you're an internet sensation and you're an internet sensation because you are this thing, but then you, you deviate off of that. You know, it's like when people do weird shit and then like they were sponsored by somebody oh, and then yeah. the sponsorships go away and that was their income. Yeah. And you know, I'm just being me, but you're just being you <laughs> still, but you're not being the you they want you to be. It's just a... Yeah, there is some weirdness when someone is sponsoring your art. Well, it's just, I think it's weird when you're like, you're sponsored for your Instagram. Yeah. And you talk about products and you show products. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, just it's a picture of you because yeah. you have so many followers but yeah i mean this is the thing back to having a big audience and the things you have to give up because like i do know people who do sponsored stuff yeah and they do some weird brands and they have to like somehow like cram the ideology of that brand into their brand and sometimes mm -hmm. you're like eh, that's kind of a stretch but like yeah they do it and they get paid and everyone's happy but yeah it's definitely like you have to change your vision it's like when uh, when Mad Men was on yeah. AMC, and um, I think it was Stoli. Oh was yeah, the vodka. <laughs> like because they were on Mad Men, like Mad Men could. There were a few episodes where they did. I don't know if it was commercial free, but limited commercials, because Stoli basically paid those commercial fees because they were actually in that episode. Oh my gosh. Yep advertorial or whatever they call it super weird well, this was awesome <laughs> we've been talking for an hour and it went fast we didn't even take a break yeah. but um thanks for thanks for talking let's talk about diy thanks for having me on this taco party <laughs> thanks ash